Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Uh, thanks for the reminder we've already had this morning that the Lord Jesus is reigning. And Father, what a privilege it is to be where we belong, uh, under his rule. Father, we pray that you would help us to think well about what it means to live under that rule, to minister the gospel under that rule, to be faithful in every way uh, in ministering the gospel. But Father, we want to start with just thanking you for your amazing faithfulness, your love, your grace, your mercy. Father, please fill our hearts and minds with uh, awe and wonder at your love and grace to us in Jesus. And as we think about ministry uh, now, to do it all in that context, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can see a few familiar faces, but uh, a few I don't know. So I sort of thought I probably should do some kind of intro about uh, myself and some background in ministry. So my name's Steve Cree. I presently lead the ministry team at Creek Road Presbyterian Church, which is here in Brisbane. It's a multi-site church now. As of two and a half years ago, we, our, our historic campus is in Carina, which is about 15 minutes southeast of the city of Brisbane. But we have started a campus in South Bank, which is right in the city, not far from here. And we're revitalising a church, our third campus, out at Springfield, which is the west of Brisbane. For those from Sydney, think Penrith, perhaps. Um, a satellite city to Brisbane. But we're also involved in... Uh, there are many churches that partner with us and use our resources in different ways. One of the key works we're involved in in that regard is in Adelaide with Parra Hills Presbyterian Church and a pastor there called Damien Carson. And he is very involved, really like a fourth campus. He comes to our planning weeks where we plan our series out. He Skypes in for our uh, talk critiques on a Tuesday morning each week and is very much involved in the ministry uh, using all the resources that we develop at Creek Road. There's a range of other partner churches that use the resources as well. So I'm going to talk a bit more about that ministry as I go. But uh, my background, I was a social worker before going into ministry, trained at the University of New South Wales, worked in social work in West, Western Sydney for a few years, then trained for ministry at Moore College. Some of you might have heard of that institution down in Sydney. And uh, trained there back in the mid-90s. And church planted from there, my appointment out of college was to church plant in Lismore. And that's in northern New South Wales, for those who don't know. And that's Southern Cross Presbyterian Church. And I was there for 12 years. Uh, yeah, that's right, 12 years. So have now been in Brisbane for six and a half years at Creek Road. So uh, I guess I'm speaking to you really just reflecting on those 18 years of ministry. And uh, in, in the context of church planting, I guess, reflecting on what it was like to go out from college head north, young man, plant a church, and the lessons learned through that kind of context. And a very different context now, I guess, in an established church, trying to pursue a multi-site ministry and planting churches through that model. But in all of it, I guess, just trying to pull together reflections on what's been helpful for me along the way. So yeah, I was given the topic, Managing Yourself, which I had a good laugh with my wife about that when I was allocated that topic. If I were to sort of write down a few topics, I might choose to speak on. It's not the one that 
most immediately leaps to mind, but it got me thinking as to how I could turn that topic into the one talk I have about ministry. Uh, and if, if, if you've heard me before, you're going to hear the same stuff. Other, although, each time I come back to it, it's like I, there's tweaks and there's new reflections that come in. But the, the thing I really like to speak about in ministry is about clarity and about knowing what you're doing. And I think we spend most of our time in ministry just thinking... What am I meant to be doing? What am I actually meant to be doing? And it occurred to me that a big part of managing... I'm just starting to take in faces. <laughs> Sorry, good to see you. Um, I think a big part of managing yourself, if, if that means... If we could translate that to not going crazy, uh, is to actually have some sense of what you're meant to be doing. And so I'm really... If there's a theme out of all of this that I'm about to present to you, it's kind of around the area of clarity and what's been helpful for me to keep coming back to what it is I think I'm meant to be doing and ministering the gospel. Um, so that's kind of where, where we're heading. It's Normally when I'm preaching, it, it is really important to me to have one big idea. I'm sure a lot of you have come across that kind of notion that that's what we should do with preaching. So I feel sort of uncomfortable about what I'm about to present to you because it is such a random collection of thoughts. Uh, but I figure this is the kind of context where it's actually helpful to range across a whole bunch of things. And it might be that for you, out of all of this, there's just one throwaway line or one book that I mention or one resource or something, and you say, right now, that's the thing that I need to think about. I really hope that's what happens for you, that out of it all, there's something that you can grab hold of. But, yeah, the theme for me is about visionary leadership, to know what it means to have vision, to have a sense about where you're heading, that to actually be leading others, to be leading yourself under God, uh, clarity is really key. And I thought I will put a big idea up front before I dive into my 16 points, um, and that is, what do you think you're leading? And if I've got one take-home for you and you, know, you don't get the rest, I think, for me, the thing that keeps fueling uh, my ministry and my sense of what I'm meant to be doing is to not picture, you know, chairs in a church, pews or whatever, but to picture trenches. And we're in a battle, and from that point of view, for me, I'm not leading a church, I'm leading a mission. Right? Not leading a church, but leading a mission. And I think half the clarity business that comes in ministry, we lose clarity when we start sort of getting really internally focused and just worn down there's, there's always pastoral stuff that's gut-wrenching. There's always, there's always some conflict going on that can be wearing you down. And that's the context in which we minister. And that's, that's actually part of the mission. That's not like a distraction. That, that is part of the mission. But the risk is that that stuff becomes all-consuming, uh, can uh, actually make us forget sometimes what we actually signed up for. And my understanding of what I signed up for is a mission. And that there are millions of lost people in this city, let alone uh, the many more around the world who need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And it's so important that leaders don't get distracted from remembering that's what we're involved in, is reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus. And it's a battle. Now, the book that has most fueled my thinking about ministry that I just want to state up front, it's a very blurry picture because I'm not sure that it's even in print anymore. Has, any, has anyone read this book, Consumed by Passion? Um, I read this in, very early on in college, just as I was entering Bible college. And he, he, Peter O'Brien in this book ranges over 
different writings of the Apostle Paul, but he particularly gives attention to 1 Corinthians and particularly 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. And those verses there with the great climax of become all things to all people in order to save some, that, that really just burned in my heart as the reason I was going to college and this would sustain me through the challenges of college and this would sustain me through the challenges of ministry. Um, and he says about, you know, where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ in chapter 11, verse 1. Peter O'Brien's, it shouldn't be a radical thesis, but his, uh, in terms of all the scholarship he was interacting with, it seemed radical, was to say the apostles' exhortation to imitation was an admonition to engage in evangelistic outreach. That it comes at that really long, comes at the end of that really long section about idols in chapters eight to ten in one Corinthians, but that the punchline "follow my example" is not simply an ethical or moral kind of "follow my example," but he's just been talking about in everything he does, he makes it his own to save to see people saved. To the Jew, I become like the Jew. To the Greek, I become like the Greek. To the weak, and this whole discussion about food sacrifice to idols is about the weak and about. Uh, the context they live in. And so when he says, follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ, he's actually talking about mission and having a heart for the lost, a burning desire to see people saved. So again, that showing my workings, that's really fueling a lot of where I'm coming from in talking to you about ministry today. 1 Corinthians from that moment became my kind of handbook. There's lots of other good stuff in the Bible, you know. Um, but 1 Corinthians became my real handbook for ministry, and particularly 9, 19 to 23. So what I want to present to you today is a conversation from 1 Corinthians and uh, kind of like a conversation with 1 Corinthians and reflections on ministry, so that I'm not claiming in the stuff that I'm putting before you today that this all comes chapter and verse from 1 Corinthians, but more as I've reflected on 1 Corinthians and I keep rereading 1 Corinthians and I think about ministry and I think about some of the tools available to us and how we should think about what we're doing. It, for me, I'm presenting to you now, here's the stuff that I reckon is consistent with uh, 1 Corinthians. That is, if Paul's wrestling there 2,000 years ago with ministry in Corinth and region, this is my current reflection wrestling with what it means to become all things to all people in order to save some in my context. So there we go, 16 questions every leader should answer. Are you ready for them? Um, that sounds so bold and strident, but let's, you know, 16... Sorry? Yeah, it's in caps. I'm, I shouldn't be yelling at you already, but um, yeah. But I'm going to take you through uh, some reflections and then give you a question at the end of each reflection. And if you take one of them as the one you want to work on most, that's great. I want to talk to you about vision. Um, Probably a go-to book if you want to think about vision is Andy Stanley's Visioneering. Um, not necessarily to get your you know, theology of church and all that, but just to think about what does it mean to cast vision, to have a sense of where you're going. It's one of the more useful books around. But I, like, I do like this quote, visions are born in the soul of a man or a woman who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. I think that is a, a, a great little summary of, of vision, this, this sense of what could be. And there's a gap between where we're at and where we can be, and that is at the heart of forming vision. And if you think about 1 Corinthians, 
Paul has this sense of who the Corinthians are, and in fact who they will be, who they already are in Christ, but he also has that sense of how they're behaving. You know, they are called to be God's holy people. They are God's holy people, but in their lives they're called to now live out that calling of being God's holy people. And doesn't that sum up the whole letter? That Paul is speaking into every part of their lives. He's speaking to the church about the gap between who they really are and who they're being. You know, the old be who you are kind of call. But you see, straight away, there's, you know, we don't have to scratch around for vision if we're thinking about our church as a starting point because in Christ, we're holy. We, you know, and this is our uh, eternal destiny is to be just like Jesus. And so straight away, that sense of what's my vision, to have a burning sense of things aren't the way they're meant to be, Paul's looking around at the church at Corinth and he's seeing it all over the place. It's not meant to be like this. What's happening there, what's happening there, what's happening there? And that's what he's speaking into. So to start getting some vision going in in our hearts and souls as leaders, it's not like we have to be too inventive at that point. We we know what Jesus is like. We know uh, that... We've been declared holy to be just like him. Well, then you can start looking at your own life, looking at individuals, looking at the church. Now, I mentioned your own life. I think the dangerous thing with vision would be to leap into just looking around at others and who they should be and looking at the church and and what the church should be. So I think a starting place for next steps in developing vision is to actually start with your own life, your own heart, your own soul... And uh, one of the most helpful books I've found for doing that is The Leader's Journey. Uh, That quote is still Andy Stanley, of course, but what I'm saying is in this tension between what is and what could be, we need, I think, to find resources, most of all people, which I'll come to later, but resources that help us reflect on, well, if if I'm holy, if I'm declared to be just like the Lord Jesus... What are the parts of my life that need to change and grow to be like the Lord Jesus? And if I'm not doing that work in my own life, then leading others uh, is not something I should be thinking about. Uh, more recently, I'd say a book that I found even more helpful in the leader's journey is Growing Yourself Up. Anyone dug into that? Um, and she's a social worker as well, so, you know. Um, but... This, it's not a book for the faint-hearted, particularly when you get into family of origin stuff and try and understand... Have you come across the expression foo-poo? It's the poo in your family of origin. Family of origin poo. Um, There you go, foo-poo. So um, this is a book for digging around in the foo-poo and and how that's made you who you are. And I think that's something, as leaders, we really need to be willing to go there, which is, for many of us, quite a painful thing. It it is for me. But in terms of growing into who we're meant to be in the Lord Jesus, uh, we need to be willing to go there. It's not an explicitly Christian book, although she sort of puts some stuff out towards the end as to where she's coming from as a Christian. But it's it's really very uh, compatible with the leader's journey approach, uh, which is much more explicit. 
in uh, talking about the gospel. Now, the other gap that should drive vision, if you just left it there, you wouldn't be catching on to what Paul's talking about, because he talks, he addresses his letter to the church of God in Corinth, and then says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't, think, I don't think that's just for apostles, you know, to be thinking wider. And there's another kind of frame for looking at the world. Now, of course, he's talking about believers at this point, but as you press on into the letter and, you, and he starts talking more about his mission, and particularly you get to the end of the letter, it's clear that part of this gap between what is and what could be needs to be our own lives, needs to be the life of our church in terms of holiness, but it's got to have that wider vision of more and more people calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. And that should drive our passion in terms of the gap between what is and what could be. What could be in terms of more and more people calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. So just because I want to illustrate as we go, our little... Uh, vision sort of statement at Creek Road at the moment, reach the city, reach the world, uh, is, I guess, driven by that sense that there are people in this city who need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, and there's people all around the world. And we're going to do what we can in our corner of the world to reach people here, but partner with others to see people reached um, in all um, different parts of the world. So that that's the vision we're running with at the moment, and I'll sort of speak into that a little bit more as we go. Now, do you notice at the start of that quote from Andy Stanley, visions are born in the soul? So I've been focused on the end of the quote, the tension between what is and what could be. But I, I do think visions being born in the soul is, is critical to leading ourselves and, having us, and leading our teams and leading our churches and leading our missions, is to have that burning in the soul, what we're meant to be doing. That is, if this is, if, if we're just sort of taking on someone else's vision, it's not really going to be in the soul, it's going to be on the wall. It's, there's going to be a sense of maybe even playing in your mind to someone else in ministry rather than to the Lord Jesus himself. And it is the Lord Jesus on the throne. So I think we need to wrestle with the scriptures and wrestle with, the eternal realities of the gospel and from there, from deep within our soul, start getting a sense of what, where we should be going and what we should be doing. And you might end up with a similar looking vision statement but it may have dimensions to it that are you in it and your people in it, your leadership team in it because it's actually coming from the soul, not just uh, off the wall or out of the book. So... You know, I'm showing you all sorts of resources that I've found helpful here that have actually shaped me and they've shaped my soul. So that's great. You've got to take all that stuff. But at some point, it's got to be a soul exercise before the Lord Jesus, not just a sort of a patching together of some nice statements. Um, and if you want a book to explore that concept a little bit more, Will Mancini's Church Unique is a good book to look at where he says, unoriginal sin plagues the church environment through photocopied vision. And he, he kind of talks about walking to different churches and going, oh, okay, this is a, insert name, brand, church. Now, again, you can have all sorts of influences and we should choose our influences well. But uh, 
to actually get to that point where, in a day-to-day sense, you're waking up with, I know what I'm meant to be doing, if the vision hasn't actually grabbed your soul, then I don't think that, uh, that clarity will be there. So, for me, the vision for Reach the Sea, Reach the World at Creek Road, and again, I'm illustrating this now from my experience, so my very point is I'm not telling you this is what you should be doing because uh, I'm giving you the example of what's grabbed my soul and inviting you to go through that exercise for yourself. But when we talk about Reach the Sea, Reach the World at Creek Road, the particular expression that takes at the moment for us is multi-site ministry. And so um, the top picture there was taken at Carina. This picture down here is from Springfield and that picture over there is from South Bank. And that's grabbed my soul, multi-site ministry, where we have campus pastors in each campus, but we're actually working still together as one team because I found the experience of going to church plant in my first couple of years out of college a really uh, challenging experience. And I had some great support, I had some great mentoring, which I'll talk about later. But for me, if we're going to see lots of churches planted and the church planters go the distance and be cared for, uh, I'm very passionate about a fellow workers model of ministry, which I'll get to later, right up the end of 1 Corinthians, where somehow the relationships are rich between the people sharing in the mission. Now, you can have expression of that within a, a church plan in terms of how the team relate to each other. But for me, I'm passionate about multi-site. This is, this is born out of my soul, out of the experience of being a church planter uh, sent out of college. And what I learned out of that about how I think things could be done better with more support, more of a fellow workers kind of approach. Uh, so to have the campus pastors not sort of so much sort of flung out. And of course, what this conference is all about is how to put support around church planters. So I think we've all learned a lot about church planting here in Australia in the last 20 years since I was sent out in 1998. But the multi-site ministry comes, out, comes from my soul in that sense, comes from that experience of how we can do things differently. If I don't get another chance to talk about media, that's something we're investing a lot into. And that, again, uh, comes very much from the soul, hearing increasingly testimonies of people that, that we're reaching where their first interaction with the gospel was through watching gospel resources online. And some of those people have made it into our church, but because it's online and out there... Who knows where they might be you know, connecting into a church somewhere else. So we're getting to hear a few of the stories. We pray that the few that we're hearing represent hundreds and thousands more. Uh, but for me to hear those stories and to realise we've got ways of getting reaching people with the gospel that we... That, well, I mean, media's always been at the heart of gospel mission. That's just how we use new media now. So uh, that's something I'll talk a little bit more about as well. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, 
Um, okay, I'll show the workings. Um, oh, the budget for this year is about 2.4 million. Um, probably about 10% um, of that is going to media. And I want to be clear, the budget is 2.4 million. Where we're tracking at the moment is somewhere less than that. And so that makes some interesting dilemmas and questions that, uh, in terms of investment in media can look like a luxury to, to some. Thankfully, um, a lot of the people who uh, give strongly at our church are particularly passionate about this ministry, which is really helpful. Um, so we have five people in a devoted media team. Media is really expensive. Uh, people always say, oh, can you make a... Can you just make a video for us, you know, thinking there'll be a couple of hours in it. But, uh, you know, to do media well, and we do uh, value decent kind of production standards, if you're actually going to put stuff out there in some context, it has to have high production values. And, of course, to have the gospel in it. Um, so I'll tell you one story. This woman is called Lisa. She won't mind me sharing it because she's shared herself this story online. Um, Lisa... Uh, started watching some videos we produced with uh, a series in Mark's Gospel 12 months ago, or a bit at the start of last year. And these videos, a couple of our filmmakers went over to on the study tour over in Israel with Peter Bolt, and they got a whole bunch of footage over there of you know, Israel and surrounds. And that enabled us each week as we were going through Mark's Gospel just to do a short kind of five-minute doco style, uh, which actually is some of the cheaper things to produce, you know, but that's still sending people out of Israel and stuff costs a bit. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in terms of defeated beliefs and where a lot of people are coming from, you know, to suddenly have, you know, the moustache talking of Peter Bolt and, you know, uh, and he's giving the historical background and you're looking at this footage of this is near where John the Baptist would have been doing his baptisms or this is, this is likely the house uh, where uh, the man was lowered, you know, the paralysed man was lowered through the roof or, or, and, or at least we're, we're at the site. And for people, this suddenly is where they thought they're getting all the fairy tale new atheism kind of language. And they're looking at historical, looking at the location, geography-wise. They're hearing the history, that stuff being put together. Well, for Lisa, this was just totally confronting about the need to look into the gospel. But she was following our media stuff for 12 months before she finally stepped into the church just three months ago for our John's Gospel series. Um, we, this isn't in here, but we start the. We start every year with the gospel at the moment. I don't know how long we're going to keep that going, but that is a series in one of the gospels, is what we do at the start of the year now every year because people just seem to, when they have the person of Jesus in front of them, we've just found that unbelievers, newcomers, the response just always seems to be that little bit stronger when we've actually got the person of Jesus. So I know we, we need to teach the whole Bible and you know we do that. But... Um, uh, yeah, so she came for the John's Gospel series, but she'd become a Christian, she said. That day she came to church to become a Christian. Like it wasn't that she was going to... There was nothing that happened in the service. She came to church with the express intention to say, what do I, where, what do, I do? I'm signing up. And, and that had all happened through the, the media. Have I answered your question?
That's a really good question that I haven't really thought about in terms of, yeah. Yep. So maybe I'll answer it more when I get there. Yep. 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 Yeah, so maybe when I, and I'll, I'll probably get there at some point, but by the way, I do really welcome you jumping in with questions, otherwise it'll, you know, we'll be able... I won't know for sure that I'm hitting where stuff you want to hear about, but, um, but I think that is helpful because I think, I actually think it's, res it's a responsibility of some of the bigger churches to, to take on this challenge and to be really generous. So we freely share these resources. We go looking for ways. You know, a lot of our partner churches are showing high-quality media that they can put alongside, and that's why Pete's point is very helpful, that, you know, we're not, just, we're not just producing the videos in Mark's Gospel, but, you know, I mean, you can talk to John Nuttall, for example, about how he's using it at Stockton, but, you know, for John, he's plugging in with some of our series. He's, you know, it's not a campus of our church in any shape or form, but... He's picking up not just the videos of Peter Bowl, but you know the, the Bible studies that go with it, the kids' resources, the youth resources, the, you know, so that it's all integrated in that way. And for, for us, that means there are smaller churches that know they're not just getting media they can trust, but they can integrate it with other with, with the teaching that they're doing. So I'll speak a bit more to that as we go. Um, this guy doesn't necessarily leap at you as someone who would talk about vision, but. Um, uh, the very essence of leadership is that you have a vision. It's got to be a vision you articulate clearly and forcefully on every occasion. You can't blow an uncertain trumpet. And I really just put that up there for that expression, you can't blow an uncertain trumpet. You know, do you each day know which trumpet you're blowing? That's what an uncertain trumpet looks like, and that's a more certain-looking trumpet. Just <laughs> thought that might help you. And we can have a certain... <laughs> trumpet, like as in the call and where we're going and to have a clear vision again because we eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Yeah. Vision for Christians and vision for churches. There's all sorts of organisations out there trying to work up what their vision is or whatever. We don't have to work it up. We are given the vision. We know where this world's heading. This world is heading to every knee bowing to the Lord Jesus, every tongue confessing that he's Lord. And the gap between what is and what will be is more people confessing him in this life before it's too late. We've got every reason to have clarity about what we're on about in the big picture of it. Yeah. Look, I mean, and there is some, something of a tension here because I'm also telling you I'm passionate about helping smaller churches and say, in a sense, here's, here's a box of stuff in terms of, you know, Mark's Gospel and some videos and this will be really helpful to you. But my, my call and the relationship I'll have with someone we're partnering with is that if they're just sort of picking up the box and then just sort of handing it out, as it were, that's not... It's got to have gone through the soul. So I'm, I'm, showing you, I'm going to show you more books and tools and stuff that I've picked up, 
but I've got to be really careful that they're only ever servants. The, the gospel itself has got to be master of my soul for the servants to actually work as servants and not become masters. So there's resources and tools and books that you can read about ministry that if they almost become the thing in your head that you're playing to, well, that's actually called an idol, not... <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus who is Lord. And so, so I'm saying when that gospel grabs hold of your heart and your soul, uh, you've then got the ability to, to plunder the Egyptians without building a golden calf, you know, to actually take hold of all sorts of tools and resources and put them to use in service of the Lord Jesus. Yep. And we're not free to make that up. Yep. Even. Yep. Um, but our philosophy of ministry yep. is what sort of comes from the soul. Yep. Even to actually meet the theology. Yep. So that's the thing that we've got to work up against. Yep. I think that's helpful, yeah, because cause it, it might be easy for us to assume it's only the theology that needs to take, you know into your soul, and then, then it's just a pragmatic kind of question beyond that. But Paul, um, there's, I think there's an article by Don Carson on 1 Corinthians 19, 29, 19-23 called Principled Pragmatism, that even the pragmatism for Paul is ruled by the gospel. He's incredibly flexible. You look at him and say, what's he doing, you know? He's eating pork one moment, he's not eating pork the next moment. Um, he just looks like a pragmatist, but he says, no, 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 the gospel is driving my pragmatism. I'm not just sort of making this up as I go along. I'm intentionally acting this way here to save people, and I'm acting this way here. So, yeah, even the philosophy of ministry and the practical questions that you have to answer are somehow really being laid down in the, in the soul, not just sort of at arm's length. It may be that, it'll, that I'll flesh this out a bit more uh, as we go. Oh, there was a question there. Can you speak your vision statement from yourself? So I think that's just a good question to think about is when you get up to, to talk about vision for the church, whatever context that might be, I mean, I believe you should do it in preaching. I think it's really important to show that the vision that you have for, a church, for your church isn't sort of like a, a subsequent consideration to the teaching of the scriptures, but that you're actually demonstrating on a regular basis. This is why we're talking about reach the city, reach the world. You can see right here, this is what the Bible's saying. And so I think you should be doing it in preaching and... And that's a good test whether it really comes from your soul because if you're sort of having a fudge to get from um, you know, what you're teaching the scriptures to the vision, then something's not quite right. It shouldn't be a surprise that we need to ask a question about Jesus and that probably should have been point one when I think about it. But um, In terms of working through 1 Corinthians, vision seemed to be, to be there in those first few verses. And of course... Um, it becomes obvious straight away as you read on in 1 Corinthians that uh, there's a problem in this church. There is a gap between who they are and how they're behaving. And at the heart of the gap in the church in Corinth is their lack of a true focus on Jesus because they're all uh, following, you know, they're talking about which leader they follow and so forth. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's really laying down there the, 
the fact that that's the name, that's the Lord, that's the ruler that they should be focused on when in fact they're arguing and they're in factions or whatever. I'm not, again, this is really just conversation with 1 Corinthians. I'm not trying to teach it sort of systematically or anything. But I'm asking you the question is, in your vision, in your preaching, in your language, in all your ministry, is the name Jesus sort of popping up a fair bit? And evidently, you know, ruling over what you do. So I don't know if you've ever done a word cloud for, you know, one of your talks. It's a good exercise to do or anything that you put in put into print to see what the word cloud is. So your word cloud shouldn't look like that, not just because Pentecostal spelt wrongly, but, you know, sometimes we're talking about all this sort of internal kind of stuff. It, it shouldn't look like that. If that's what is coming through in your preaching, that's a way of addressing the gap between where people are at and where they should be, but that doesn't look like um, a poor word cloud. It, and there's a, there's a word cloud we did on a couple of our documents, and I was glad that Jesus seemed to be uh, prominent in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, in Corinth, it's become Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Cephas, and probably the most sanctimonious group, Christ, not really uh, with a focus on him, but using it as some kind of club on the others. Um, my, there's an election coming up. I don't know if you're aware of that. A short campaign with only 17 months left to run. Um, when, when I first came to Creek Road, it was evident that there was a very strong gospel focus, but something that the leadership had recognised had started to happen across a number of years was there were a lot of different groups in the church very passionate about different um, activities, events, programs, and what was a good thing, what had been a good thing, had become actually potentially unwittingly like competitive and so it was quite striking to me to walk into the foyer for the first time and it felt like this experience <laughs> a number of people handing out different things for events many of which were on the same date um, there's something in the background of that picture that I noticed can you see that cross up there uh, so what's your what are the meta-communications that happen at your church? Not just is the name Jesus being mentioned, but do people get a sense that everything is, is sort of being corralled under his name and to serve him and to help others know him? Or is there just this sense of a smorgasbord uh, of stuff that's going on? I'm sorry if this is your church, any of you. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of them. I'm not sure. That's just what... That's wrong. I'm just saying that's wrong. You shouldn't have that on public display. Okay. And you should think about punctuation. Um, <laughs> because it's Jesus we're meant to worship, I'm pretty sure. Um, thanks. I just thought every now and then you might need some help today. So if your communication as a leader and as a church was captured as a word cloud, would Jesus dominate? And, you know, not just as a sort of a checkbox. <laughs> it's easy to take it for granted, though. Which Jesus, though? Not just Jesus, but a crucified Jesus. Um, you know, the word cloud should be Jesus, but it should have a cross shape to it. Because Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, and so I'm not going to misquote it. I'm going to just make the observation that 
when you actually take in the whole revelation of, uh, of the scriptures, you don't need to dig out a verse in Proverbs about people perishing without vision. But in fact, from 1 Corinthians, people perish without the cross of Jesus is in fact what we know to be at the heart of the gospel. So I suspect that's where our vision needs to come from, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So there's all sorts of Jesus options out there. But all that activity in the front was potentially clouding rather than making clear uh, the cross, which is our vision. Huge influence for me, if you allow me to step out of 1 Corinthians for one moment, is Luke 24 uh, and particularly Graham Goldsworthy's teaching around Luke 24, you know, where Jesus says that the whole Old Testament is about him. Uh, all the law, the prophets, the Psalms, that is the whole Old Testament, is about Jesus' death and resurrection and the message for the forgiveness of sins going out to all, all the world. Uh, I think we need to be called back to this over and over again, that we treat Luke 24 seriously and that, you know, that we're always preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It should always be there every week. Uh, wherever we are in the scriptures, Jesus says that it's actually about his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so I want, want to put that challenge out to you, that we're not just talking about Jesus, but we're talking about the crucified Jesus. And the message that takes people from perishing to being saved is the message of the cross. And of course, 1 Corinthians, we'll get to it a bit later, what's of first importance to Paul? It's that Christ died and was buried and rose and appeared. If, if, if it's of first importance, it simply has to be there whenever we gather as Christians. Or else, as Graham Goldsworthy used to say in some of our sermon critiques at Moore College, nice sermon would work well in a synagogue. Did anyone ever get that from Goldie? That's not... Um, Goldie's saying, nice sermon, right? Uh, yeah. See, his point is, if we're preaching from the Old Testament and, and we don't actually preach Jesus and show its fulfilment in the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, that could have gone down in a synagogue. I, I might be preaching to the choir at this point. Um, give you the sing in a moment, we'll see. Um, but um, I need to be called back to this all the time, to never take it for granted. This is our job. This is our mission this is our vision. It's, it's all about Christ and him crucified. So here's my third question for you. If your communication as a leader and as a church was captured as a word cloud, would the cross of Jesus dominate? I want to talk to you about pathways now. Uh, called to be his holy people. So they are holy, but they're called to be holy. There's this sense of a journey that they're on, a pathway they need to follow. They've got to get from the way they're behaving to the way they should be behaving under the lordship of Jesus, that's a pathway. And I want to just get you to think about what are the pathways for your people to move from being infants in Christ to being mature. That's what Paul's working with his people about. Now, really, again, I'm just throwing books out at you. These are not the books you get from the... Uh, this is not, these are not the books you get your theology of church from. And, you know, they're the books you put in that particular part of your library <laughs> that aren't with the commentaries and everything else. But you should dip into them every now and then. And if you want a book to think about 
pathways, this book, Seven Practices of Effective Ministry, is really worth having a look at. Think steps, not programs. I think it's easy just to think that if we put on enough programs that somehow something will come out of it. But we actually need to have a sense of our ministry to people. Where are they at? I mean, Peter Bolt did this ages ago with Mission Minded and talked about the stages that people are at and the different things you do in your church and how are these ministries helping evangelise people? How are they, what are your ministries for people if they've just become a Christian? What does it look like for someone to grow as a Christian? What does it look like to develop as a leader? You know, what are all the steps, not just a bunch of programs, and hoping that maturity will somehow come out of it? Um, another really helpful book in that same category for thinking about pathways is Simple Church, where Tom Rayner says, churches with a clear disciple-making process are vibrant and growing. Vibrant churches do four things, design a simple disciple-making process, organise key programs to accomplish this, unite all ministries around the process and eliminate everything else. And it's that bit at the end that's no place for the faint-hearted. And, you know, the journey at Creek Road when I say that uh, there were... We developed too many programs, too many events, too many ministries. Well, it's a painful process when you actually need to start making decisions that some of these things have actually now become distractions or we're just simply doing too much. Uh, so that, that is a challenging um, process to go through. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But this, this book really nailed me when I first read it um, back in Lismore where... I realised that we'd developed a whole bunch of events and programs across the, the years. We'd put on an event one year and I'd go, that was terrific, let's do it again next year. And there was a new opportunity for another program and so another program develops. And suddenly we got to the point where we created this monster. We weren't running the church, it was running us and it was killing us. And so we had to make some decisions at a certain stage of the life of the church that we would pursue more of a pathway uh, approach. And that's been the journey at Creek Road as well. Is to, and so, you know, we're using those three simple words. Connect. What does it look like for people to uh, connect to the Lord Jesus and to his people? What does it look like for them to grow? And so our big emphasis there is growth groups and then serve. And the big emphasis there is ministry teams. Um, I need to keep moving, so I won't explain the graphic in a lot of detail, but we do talk to people about looking at needs first. Part of the reason you end up with a program church is if people start with, hey, I've got this gift that has to be used, <laughs> um, rather than what are the needs that have to be met. And if you actually have a needs kind of mentality, you might discover gifts you never knew you had. And the pathway, we talk about... We talk about this as like the horizontal pathway, as it were. This is people of all ages moving from being an unbeliever to being a mature believer through the Connect, Grow, Serve process. But, of course, you've got kids and youth, what we call the vertical pathway, uh, also moving through that pathway. So you can have a really mature, serving eight-year-old kid or you can have an immature new Christian who's 70 years old. You know, So to actually work out for each person where they're at, we need to think of them on both of those pathways, you know, because there are ways for really young people to get involved in serving and to learn what it means to serve uh, the mission of Jesus. So we're always thinking on those two pathways with maturity being the goal. 
What is your process for people to journey from unbelief to maturity in Jesus? How do you communicate this process? And again, communicating it is really key. This shouldn't be sort of hidden away somewhere. This should be really evident to everyone that your whole church would know if someone stepped in and said, oh, look, here's where I'm at, you know, what's my next step or something like that. Uh, that it's not just that leaders know, but the whole church would know, oh, you know, you need to do the Connect course. The next one is on in a couple of weeks' time or... Yeah, Yeah, look, I'm intentionally trying to subvert something there. Um, so I'm, the reality is what we do is we sit down and we do a serve interview with someone. If, you know, when, once they're established in a growth group, there's a process by which uh, through their growth group leader, it's time to sit down. Hey, it'd be great for you to get involved in serving in the church now that you sort of feel like you're at home and you're growing in a growth group. You know, the next step is to serve. And in that serve interview, there's definitely an exploration of what are they passionate about, what are their gifts. Um, but we also put before people the needs in the church. So we, someone might turn up and say, look, I'm a really terrific guitarist, you know, you should hear me play. And, but where we're at, we might say, look, we can talk about music ministry, but at the moment we need three more people in our kids' ministry and there's an opportunity there be involved in this would you like to hear can we talk more about that and not just sort of you must do this you know because of course it needs to be a conversation and people need to feel that you know they're, they're looking at, at options but we're really trying to subvert a consumer mentality that is deadly to the church if people only think in terms of here I am and this is the way I'm going to serve and almost get out of my way and, and there and there are people like that and it needs to be challenged so that, I'm really just sort of subverting something there but definitely, there should be a sweet spot between needs and gifts that means people don't feel they're being put into something um, you know, that's just a complete misfit for them. But we've seen people go into kids' ministry that, never, that thought, thought they would never do kids' ministry. And we invite them, hey, would you, would you give it a go for a term and here's how we're going to train you and support you and then let's review it together. And there's, we've had a number of people say, thank you for doing that and wanted to press on. And others who don't, but that's a good experience for them as well. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, look, I mean, there's probably a, there's a pretty massive discussion on that one. In that graphic that had the needs and the gifts there, it also had the cross in the middle. Uh, sorry, the cross at each end. What, what trumps both needs and gifts is character. And that's what you know, the Bible talks about more when it comes to ministry than needs or gifts. You know, there's, there's a few passages about gifts. I mean, there's only really um, four, in fact. You know, there's Ephesians 4, there's Romans 12, there's 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and then there's a little verse in 1 Peter. You know, so there's a, a few passages bear a pretty heavy load if you're just looking through the gift window at the New Testament. Um, but what is absolutely everywhere where ministry is talked about is character. And so I don't know if I'm sort of heading in, in towards any kind of answer for what you're asking there, but I'm saying we need to subvert the dominance of the gift paradigm and start talking more about needs. But in that discussion, you're actually appealing to a Christ-like character. And so character is actually the thing we need to develop in people. So my hope is when people come to that serve interview, if they've actually been growing in the growth groups, been sitting under the word, that what is developing in them, and this is key language for us, is a servant heart. And I've really learned in new ways across the last few years, in some painful ways, that when it comes to particularly recruiting staff, don't be uh, too much wowed by gifts. Look for character every time. Um, So... The bell's tolling, so we're going to go to the eternal pathway. Um, much more important than the horizontal pathway of Connect, Grow, Serve and the vertical pathway of kids, youth, young adults and growing to maturity is to remember that in all of this, people are on one path or another. They're perishing or they're being saved. So there it is again. And, and I just think that's really important for our vision, for our ministry, for that sense of what we're doing every day, that if, yeah, Connect, Grow, Serve and that pathway could really just become another program, couldn't it? You know, and just seeing people kind of, oh, that's good, more people are in growth groups, oh, that's good, more people are in ministry teams. But if this isn't all fuelled by the sense of urgency and the sense of awe that there's an eternal pathway happening in this world, then it will just become another program in the end. But this is what keeps it about people for me. And... Again, I'm not attempting an exposition on 1 Corinthians, but I firmly believe that what is brought to light on the day is people, you know, and, and the reward and the joy of that day will be the people who are saved. And so that's what fuels our ministry. There's 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 23. Um, for all the Greek scholars, you know that there's seven purpose clauses in these verses and... Um, they all revolve around that Greek word hina, which is translated a bit sort of softly as to, but the stronger, better translation is in order that, you know. It's a strong word, and there's seven of them. So each of these sentences is constructed, you know, to the Jews I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I become like one under the law. In order to win those under the law. In order to, in order to. So there's purpose. There's a sense of purpose every day, a sense of vision and mission every day. And, you know, the summary, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So this is the eternal pathway at work for Paul. You know, you look at what he's doing each day and you you almost get the impression of a lack of purpose because his behaviour is so different in different situations. But there's one purpose guiding him all the time, which is salvation of people.
Uh, particularly if you're from Sydney, you'll know who that is. Yeah, Arthur Stace, Eternity. I just love the, guy, the idea of a guy getting up every... You know, his story, he wrote this word, Eternity, on the footpaths of Sydney, you know, back in the 30s, um, and wrote it you know, thousands and thousands of times. He's a guy who wakes up every day with the word eternity uh, in his heart and writing it out. Um, it's featured at the Millennium Fireworks. I just think we should walk through our city um, looking at people with the word eternity blazing in our heart and almost written across um, them. So that's... For me, when I'm speaking from the soul about reach the reach the world, it's it's got that eternal pathway fueling it, and all we do, and that means we give particular attention to newcomers because on the eternal pathway, who knows when someone steps through your doors if that's not the moment that someone's about to have their eternal pathway changed. I mean, I know you know this, but it's a massive event for someone to come to a church for the first time. And this was talked about somewhere earlier, but we're seeing more de-churched people coming through our doors. So they've got a story of the church somewhere in the background and they're coming back. But we're also seeing unchurched. But people, everyone's got a story. It's never a small thing. It is a holy moment, an, an ordained, wonderful, extraordinary moment when someone steps through the doors of the church, whether it's on a Sunday or to some, something you're doing. We should all have this sort of trembling or before God at that moment about what's this person's story, what's brought them here at this moment, and to be curious about it and to not take for granted... Like, we can do Connect, Grow, Serve. We can see whether someone is doing a newcomer's Connect course or they're now in a growth group or they're now serving, but there's some, there's some spiritual reality going on behind it all that we're, we have less access to, but we need to know it's very real and it's the gospel that fuels every... It's the gospel that at that point is what someone needs to hear and to experience to um, have their eternal pathway changed. And so we've done a lot with the church, just little things about where people park their cars, um, where they sit on seats and stuff like that, that are little uh, embodiments of, of the mission of putting newcomers first. And I think it's worth just coming up with some of those for your church. <laughs> you know, here's what it would look like to put a newcomer first. Sorry. Yeah, this is a random slide set of just stuff in the kit bag, and so and some of these are old versions of graphics and stuff. But so some of this stuff will just be on the loop. Um, so we actually don't mind a newcomer seeing that, you know, um, and so that'll just be on the PowerPoint loop in the in the break and after church and stuff like that. Yeah, but it will speak to them from time to time. It's actually something we've dropped the ball a bit on just recently. Multi-site for the last two years has been a whole new adventure. Uh, yeah. You know, so do you have clear meta-communications and real communications that if someone is new, that the eternal pathway is actually happening at this moment? You know, for me, this means you can't just have a door roster. You need a team that really own this and model for the whole church. So that's our Connect team at work there. 
you know, and so we'll have slides up like this, not yet connected. We're not actually doing it as a Connect Lounge anymore, it's a Connect Desk, but you get the point. They're just examples. Um, and, you know, most, most of our leaders know when the next Connect course is on so that it's not hidden information if someone's turning up that they've got access to how to take some next steps with us. To move along the pathway. It's just a random... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good question, I'm, and I'm just sort of trying to run through the objections. Is is newcomer? Does that sound like the internal language for the newcomer than rather than how they think about themselves? Yeah, it's one of those feel things. I've never been fully comfortable with the guest idea because to me that still implies perhaps a one-off, you know, like there's members and guests, you know, at clubs. And um, I want people to have a sense of being invited in. And so newcomer means, you know, to me it's invitational about a journey, about a pathway. So, but that's a feel thing. That's, and maybe it's the words you put around it that, that give it, you know, maybe a word can't bear the whole burden and it's how you kind of speak to people with the word, you know. So we... And, and we're probably, there's probably more stuff going up from us that's about not yet connected, you know. And again, that's got that real invitation sense of we think that you're going to want to connect with us and we're inviting you to. Yeah. Sorry, am I obviously standing somewhere wrong? Sorry. Uh, it, I, I think one of the tips is just to expect that there will be conflict and expect that not everyone will come the, diff the distance. Change, by its very nature, brings conflict. Um, you, it is not possible to change the way a group of people understand the way they're going to do things uh, without there being conflict. Now, I reflect on the last few years and think, well, there's ways we could have reduced that conflict, there's ways we could have listened better, we could have taken more time. Um, so I think we've probably... We've moved very quickly at Creek Road and that's been costly and people... But that's a decision you've got to weigh up. Um, so going multi-site, we'd gone through a lot of change across four years and some of them were relatively small things, like not passing bags around anymore, but doing electronic giving and changing, the, you know, just a small thing like music that people don't have very big opinions about, um, and all sorts of other stuff. And you know, and at each point of change, there's just so. 
So at one level, I think you've got to work out how to be clear, but when you are clear, there's also this battle that's going on, are we really on about the lost? And, and all I can say is I think you've got to do your best to keep reminding people that that's why we're doing those things. That's why I put the eternal pathway up there. There's got to be a reason. Uh, you know, casting vision only works when you convince people that there's a crisis. You don't change if you think everything's fine. But it's not hard for us to convince people that not everything's fine because there are thousands, millions of people around us who are lost. But it's a spiritual battle for that to take hold. So I'm saying the vision's born in your soul. What does it look like to, for it to be born in the soul of all your people? Well, at, at one level, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that that you can't bear, bear the full burden for, but you can try to be clear about the gospel. Like I really think it's the gospel itself that, that has to stir the hearts of God's people to embrace that vision. But we're, at, at, we're influenced by a brand of Christianity in Australia. Like I just mean, I'm not pointing the finger in any direction, I'm just saying it's more the comfort of our nation, the material comfort of the lives we live, make it a reinforcing for us over and over again and in the lives of our people they are getting hammered day in day out live as comfortable a life as you can and church has become for people a haven of comfort against the changes that are going on you know we've gone through so much change in our society in in the last 20 years and so for a lot of people church is the haven of this is something familiar and and it's not all bad, you know, that that's the way people feel about their church. That it's, but, you know, the evil one can turn that sense, uh, a right sense of belonging into a selfish sense of this is really messing with my comfort. And, and yeah, I'm not being flippant, but prayer is the biggest thing there, you know, to, to pray that, that the gospel itself will change hearts, soften hearts, to look differently at what meant, what we're meant to be doing as a church, but I think it will be it will always be a rough ride. Season, I'm not going to get through all my points. If you if you're wondering, <laughs> uh, you know, sense of different seasons in a church, different seasons in ministry. Um, this is. This is a really good book for thinking through the question of what season you're in, your church in rhythm. So he makes the point that um, you can have your five statements on the, you know, your, your five purpose statements, or you can have your three nice words, connect, grow, serve, or you can have your seven or whatever. But the next thing you've got to work out is what season are we in? Out of all the stuff that we're doing, out of... What's the thing that actually needs most attention right now? And he says, if you're trying to work on everything, every ministry, every aspect of your ministry equally all at once, you will, you will fail and hurt yourself a great deal trying to do it. And so this was, this, was so, this was so good for my soul. He uses an expression, I don't know if I've got it in my slides, that, um, toxic perfectionism. Have you met people like that? Toxic perfectionists. I know some people like that, um, and it's not—it's not a good thing. And so he's got this expression, releasing expectations. 
And this was like the most shocking, confronting thing for me reading this book. What? So he's saying, you may need to release the expectation that a particular ministry at this point in time is going to rise to the health you want it to because that's not the priority right now. You know, you've got to live with some mess, live with some unfinished business, live with some future opportunities because you need to discern right now in the gap between where we're at and where we need to be, what is it that most needs your attention? So the season we've been in at Creek Road for the last couple of years is transition to multi-site, which after all those other changes that we'd been through was the biggest change yet and the most costly in terms of you know, conflict that came with it and, and just the total reorientation of who we are as a church. Um, and that's been just so demanding upon me and upon uh, many of us in the leadership at Creek Road that we've had to release expectations all over the place. And so a, a number of our ministries, I would almost say, have gone backwards, you could say, in terms of their effectiveness while we've been going through that transition to multi-site. But we have to believe that in the long term, in terms of the eternal pathway, and praise God, you know, we're seeing fantastic growth at the South Bank campus. We're seeing real health emerging at the Springfield campus. Uh, there's a degree of recovery going on at the, the, the one that started all this, at the Carina campus. And, but, you know, we're not running the mission accomplished flag up yet. We're just saying, gee, this has been really costly, but this is the season we're in. We're trying to transition to being a multi-site church, and we hope to plant more campuses in the next few years. Um, but we're actually at a point right now where we can say, hey, this seems to be up and running. Now, let's just take stock here. There's mess everywhere. Where are we going to start? What season are we in? So I think that's a really, that's a big question for us need to, we need to be able to answer. In any given period at church, we need to focus on one element or another, but not on all of them. Being a pastor is like being a stray dog at a whistler's convention, right? People will want you to focus on everything. Um, There are forces at work to drag you away from having any sense of focus, any sense of what season you're in. And uh, and so I just thought that quote's so important. We just scroll through three different dogs. Um, That's my dog, if you're wondering. And this is why I think SWOT analysis is not a great tool. Because maybe it's just me, but if I go through strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, in my heart, where am I likely to be drawn if I'm a bit tired? And you, tend to get dra- you tend to get dragged over to the right-hand side. And it may actually be that where you're at at the moment, they're precisely the things that you, you, you can't address right now and there's an opportunity staring you in the face that you need to take hold of. So yeah, we tend to focus there when I, when I think um, sometimes this, the, the season will become clearest when you actually realise God seems to be doing something sensational through what we're doing here. Let, let's not get distracted from that. Let's keep working on how to grow that more, which comes back to the church unique thing and that you know, what God will do th- through your ministry, through your church... Yeah, it'll, it'll take a different shape according to where we are and the gifts we have and what we're doing there. So I encourage you, if you use the SWAT tool, to maybe just be careful with it. Ah, oh, there it is. Avoid toxic perfectionism. So, yeah, it's not good to be trying to make everything um, terrific at once. 
What season is your church in? What priorities flow from this? What expectations need to be released? Uh, I'm going to move quickly past this one, which is called Carrot and Stick, and uh, how does Paul resolve his own dilemma about you know, coming in love or coming with the rod of discipline? Is it the carrot? It's actually, um, if you'll excuse the pun, it's this stick, it's the, it's the cross that actually... Um, he does both, but he does it through the cross. So... The discipline comes from the gospel and the love and the gentleness comes from the gospel. For the whole letter, he actually does both, I, I believe. Um, but he does it through preaching Christ and him crucified, which is why the word cloud is not shame on you, but Jesus Christ crucified. It's not that one, it's that one. I'm going to move past that. But I think you've got to trust the gospel to shape hearts at that point. And if we try to wield personal authority rather than the authority of the gospel. I mean, an apostle could possibly have wielded a bit more, but I think he chose to make it the the cross that shapes hearts, so I'm pretty sure we should. Invest in your marriage. I really don't want to rush past that point. I mean, this amazing passage about intimacy, about sexual intimacy, but puts a priority on prayer intimacy. And so if you're married, I do ask you the question again. I'm really want to be careful about this. This is not the shame on you kind of um, beat up, but the invitation, how good it is to pray uh, with your spouse. And and Rosie and I have really struggled with this through 25 years of marriage, uh, as in it, it is so hard to get into the good habits and so easy for them at a different stage or season of life, some event, something that can, can throw you off course, but we keep coming back to it. It's been really fruitful. I've had days where I can't... where Rosie has, in a sense, prayed with me, providing words for emotions that I'm going through where even my own prayer is a struggle, but my wife is praying with me and helping me find words before God that I couldn't find myself. And so it's, I think that is so important for... It, to me, that's, that's the best thing to grow and to protect a marriage is that kind of prayer. Um, you know, so there's all sorts of preparation that I went through at Bible college in terms of, you know, my head and learning. And, um, and then I get to Lismore, church planting. That's just what Lismore looks like. Actually, mostly it looks like that. Um, I've got to do my between the rainforest and the sea bit at this point. Yeah, Lismore's tourism motto is between the rainforest and the sea. You know what that's code for, don't you? It's code for two things. Firstly, get out. Like, it's beautiful that way and it's beautiful that way. Just You can't lose if you get out of Lismore. Anyone from Lismore here? <laughs> but it's also code for between the rainforest and the sea. All that rain's got to go somewhere to get from the rainforest to the sea and it goes through Lismore. Um, that's the house we lived in for our first two years in Lismore, Avondale Avenue. And um, they're the years Rosie and I call the dark years. Of, uh, <laughs> what would you know? Um, yeah, so those first two years were really tough. I was just working way too many hours, working too hard. Our viability pathway, speaking of pathways, was that we were given 20 grand for the first year and 10 grand for the second year and needed to be viable. 
Um, and so I don't know if that's the way it's done these days. Um, we're not doing multi-site that way. Um, and so I put a huge pressure on myself and perhaps that pressure was not helpfully put externally as well to get to viability. And uh, really, it's a testimony to Rosie's patience and grace uh, to get through those couple of years. And we've had plenty of dark years since. Um, I won't go into that now. Um, by which I mean a particularly dark period for us was towards the latter part of our time in Lismore. Rosie uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer and it was quite a serious prognosis and so we had a, another whole uh, journey there through darkness. Uh, she's in good health now, praise God, after the whole horror of chemotherapy and radiation therapy and surgery. And, um, that was another time when we learned people praying for us, in a sense, giving words where we couldn't find them. So again, praying together, but having people who will pray with you to help help you process life before God. That Prayer is profound at that point, you know, and so... Uh, Invest in your marriage in terms of praying together, but also perhaps people that you can pray with from the heart. And that's why, yeah, I got there, the resources stuff that Pete mentioned earlier. I mean, I can get all excited about talking about all the resources that we produce, but for me it actually comes back to that sense of getting around brothers and sisters in ministry and that it shouldn't be quite as lonely and dark as it was in those first couple of years. And I believe that's what these conferences are about. We're actually trying to do it better. We're trying to get around support each other, get coaching into planters' lives. But for me, I'm passionate about this, not just because, oh, isn't this a nice resource? I'm thinking of some struggling brother for whom, if we can make the job a little bit easier by putting some resources in their hands, maybe they're just a little bit more likely to see their family as much as they should be. And I've talked about that. How are you investing in the intimacy of your marriage? What relationships might you need to say no to for a better uh, yes to your vows? I'm going to rip through some stuff I wanted to talk about knowing idols in terms of 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 <laughs> know the idols and the question is what is your strategy for knowing the idols of your time and place I'm going to move past example I really wanted to talk about excellent Sundays and uh Integrating everything you do, preaching the gospel every Sunday. Not a busy calendar, but, you know, Sundays is a massive gospel opportunity every week. You're just going to have to bear with me. I've got so many slides here for this section. I hope the visual journey as well as that annoying feedback is giving you something. Do you talk about money is the next question because you're messing with the idols. Music and money, they're the two biggest ones probably. Um, are you talking about money as much as Jesus did? How you can contextualise his challenges about money? I wanted to talk about planning. Great quote from Edison, vision without execution is hallucination. So you've got to, um, yeah, how do you get from that vision in the soul to actually getting some plans down? Um, but, you know, even Paul planned in pencil, you know, perhaps I'll stay, I, I hope. And we don't even know for sure what came of some of those plans. 
I was going to talk about Osborne's stuff on planning and pencil. Wow. How was I ever going to cover all this? The thing I did want to talk about was mentoring. Um, some of you know this chap, Dave Thurston. So I talk about the dark years, but um, by the grace of God, one thing that I think did get me through that time, apart from an incredibly gracious wife and some uh, great brothers and sisters in the church at Lismore, was this guy on the phone to me most days of my life in ministry across the last 18 years, there are more days of my life I've spoken to Dave on the phone than not, which is pretty weird when I put it out there like that. Um, but he, he was there when I became a Christian when I was 15 as a student minister at Roseville Presbyterian Church. He mentored me, discipled me back then. Um, then I didn't have anything to do with him for about 15 years or something. In my last year at Moore College, my student ministry was not with a church but with the Ministry of Evangelism that Dave was overseeing at the time. So I had a year with him talking about ministry and evangelism and church planting and he poured heaps into me that year and then I was you know, sent up to Lismore. I thought, well, I'm on my own now. Dave called the first day, said, oh, how did the trip go? And I thought, that's really kind of him, you know. And Oh, yeah, it went pretty well. Then he called the next day and said, so... What are you planning to preach on your first Sunday coming? Uh, oh, am I meant to preach this Sunday? So, you know, I'm learning stuff from him. Um, <laughs> and uh, all sorts of things are becoming clear now through mentoring. And, um, but it took me a while. It took about a week of him calling every day to realise, oh, I think maybe he's planning to keep some sort of contact. He never announced himself as my mentor. He just did it. And um, so, look... I'm sorry that I'm rushing this last bit, but I just think you know the coaching stuff that's being developed through Geneva and other stuff that's happening out there through mentoring, it is it is just so important. I think we all need to be able to identify who's ment- who's mentoring me and who am I mentoring. Um, and the other bit that I'm going to rush way too much is the stuff at the end of the letter. This is what I'm most passionate about in Paul's writings. Actually, is the team ministry you see. Um, you know, he, he calls all these people, they're all those sun prefixes, you know, with um, fellow workers, fellow slaves, fellow soldiers, servants. Um, this is Paul's language about those he's in ministry with, and so it makes a bit of a mockery of, you know, the Paul's missionary journeys. I mean, yeah, we should be incredibly grateful to God for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but there's all sorts of people on these journeys with him that tend to kind of get lost in the story. And... Um, one of my biggest exhortations to you is when you're preaching the letters, don't get to those bits at the end in 1 Corinthians or Romans or wherever that normally have inspiring headings like final words or, you know, something about Paul's coat. You think this is just like the credits rolling up at the end of the movie. It's not. This is where you actually get a window into ministry. And I said earlier there's only four passages about gifts and there's certainly fewer, there's less biblical material about offices if you get excited about Episcopoi and Presbyteroi and Diaconoi. There's not a lot of gear there. There's a lot more gear on this stuff, the, the fellow workers. And so, for me, um, I talked about Dave Thurston, uh, but you actually need a pit crew around you, uh, both in your team, within your ministry at church, but also a wider sense of a pit crew around you. It takes a village to raise a child and to care for a pastor as well. Um, I'd love to talk about this picture, but I'm... These are four guys I went through college with. Matt Oates, top left. Jamie Newins, top right. Paul McKendrick, bottom left corner. Mark Cooper, bottom right corner. 
Uh, we've met together for three days, three or four days, uh, every year for a retreat, and not one of us has missed one year across 18 years, which is a miracle in itself when I think of all the things we've all been through. Um, that's, that's what it's looked like in my life. And again, I, I think by the grace of God, I can't imagine that I'd still be doing ministry without these guys and us praying for each other. Um, it started off in the early years with playing talks to each other and, oh, look, here's our new Sunday handout or, look, here's, have a look at our website. Um, now it's just become, come here, give us a hug. You know, um, it really is patching each other up, hearing the stuff we've been through. And I'm amazed. It's like these four guys are with me in everything I go through in ministry. I'm thinking, no one will believe this. <laughs> no, one, no one would believe that this is happening right now. But I've got somewhere safe that I can go and say, would you believe this? And they go, yeah, I believe that. So, um, look, that's, that's um, uh, part of my pit crew. But this is our preaching team. Emily uh, at the front there organises us. But these are the guys I get to preach the gospel with at Creek Road. And so the fellow workers bit is definitely kind of woven into our sense of who we are as a team. And I'll make this my concluding reflection on clarity of purpose. I sometimes ask the question, did the Reformation ever happen? Because we put a burden on ourselves like we're priests. And I think we sometimes even approach preaching like we're just a, just a modified version of... of pre-reformation that it's all down to us as an individual i think developing uh however you go about your preaching developing other preachers and having a shared sense of preaching ministry now for us that's embedded because it's a multi-site ministry and so we're working on developing series together and preaching in the different locations but whatever it looks like in your context training up others and sharing in the preaching ministry um, is a huge protection against thinking that we're the priest or the rock star or the idol or whatever it might be um, and for me that's actually a real that's a real protection of the vision being about Jesus and him crucified and a message that we proclaim together and that we're working up together I look very relaxed there that's not normal um, you know we do a planning week and it's not just the preachers that's their media team kids youth a whole bunch of other um, staff and team members that's a fellow workers' activity and it's the word that we're actually got open and we're working out how we're going to minister this together. Again, in your context, what does it look like to have a fellow workers' ministry? It's a huge part of clarity and keeping it about Christ and him crucified and not about ourselves. I'm over time. I realise that's a huge spray of a whole bunch of stuff. I just hope out of, out of all of it somewhere, one of those questions is something that you can uh, take with you and I'm very happy to hang around if you want to have a, have a chat. Um,